John 4, 39 to 45, the Savior of the world. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this word you've given us. We know that it is the true word of God, the living and abiding word of God. Therefore, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. We've come here in John chapter 4 to a section where we have a conclusion on Jesus' ministry, a conclusion on what he's been doing in Samaria, and not only what he's been doing in Samaria, how he finally arrives in Galilee. Well, what has happened so far here in this chapter? So far in this chapter, Christ and his disciples have gone to Samaria outside of Judea and outside of Jerusalem, headed north. Samaria being immediately north of Judea, he passes through there and he's headed to Galilee. We see that from John chapter 4, verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. But on his way to Galilee, he encounters this woman at a well, and this is the woman of Samaria. He has an exchange with her and he explains who he is to her. He reveals what she needs and her sin. And then she proceeds from that conversation. She goes back, runs back into the town and tells the townspeople about all that had happened to her. And meantime, his disciples, his disciples return and Jesus is alone. By that point, they see that the woman has departed and Jesus informs them of their need to desire the same food he desires. Though it was lunchtime and everybody's hungry, It says in 434, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then he proceeds to tell his disciples that there is a great harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ripe. We need to harvest. And he means harvest the souls of men, which harvest they experience in Samaria and then in Galilee. And that's where we are here. In Samaria, in verses 39 to 42, and then in the region or province of Galilee, in verses 43 to 45. Now let's see what actually happens. In verse 39, and from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. I gather from this passage and from the context, especially because of verse 41, many more believed because of his word, that this is describing true belief. He's describing true belief here. John the Apostle is describing true belief. Not false belief, 
He has and he will describe false belief in this book. He'll use the same word belief, same word disciple, same word faith to describe it in the true sense and also in the false sense. And if we read carefully, we'll understand when he's describing it in the true sense and when he's describing it in the false sense. In the false sense, just to illustrate one example, is chapter 2, John chapter 2, verse 23. John 2, 23. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is a group of people, and John says they believed in him. Verse 23, many believed. He says that word, believe. But in verse 24, Jesus does not believe them. That's why he doesn't entrust himself to them, because he knew in their heart what they were really about. They just were intrigued. They just were uh, stunned by his miracles, but they didn't really believe in him and in his word, in his true nature, who he was and what he came to do. And then in chapter 3 of John, Nicodemus is a single personal example and even an astonishing example because he is a teacher of the Bible, the teacher of the Old Testament to the people, and he also believed that Jesus was a teacher from God, a miracle worker, but not his Savior. All right, so a general popular example in chapter 2, a single example in chapter 3 of false belief of people who did not truly believe. But then when we come to chapter 4, we have the woman of Samaria. She truly does believe. And then we have the Samaritans who truly believe. And we'll also see that the Galileans will also, some of them will truly believe. And he will describe true belief as well. This, we must keep in mind that the Bible, not just in the book of John, but throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, will always present to us illustrations of true faith and false faith. True faith and false faith. We must keep that in mind. Don't be confused and do not be misled into thinking that when the Bible says somebody is a disciple or someone is a believer, that it means it in the true sense. It may, but it may not. And not only is that true throughout the Bible, why does God do that throughout the Bible? So that we can do that today. We can understand that there will be many people who say, I am a Christian. Many people will say, I am a believer. Many people will say, I, I am a disciple of Christ. I belong to Christ. I am going to heaven. Many will say that, but then the further we understand their beliefs and the further we understand the way they live, we'll know that they are, whether they are true in their statements or false. So in this case, it is true. Then it says in 39 that many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. It says, because of the word of the woman. Well, what did the woman say? What did the woman do? It says, he told me all the things that I have done. Notice that? We'll come to that point. But the word of the woman was not the word of a pastoral woman. It was not the word of a teaching woman. 
It was not the word of a woman in the office of priest, office of pastor, office of teacher. She did not hold that position in a local congregation because that would have been forbidden. And that's not what John is describing. This is important to illustrate or to state because based on this example, there are some people who conclude that women or qualified women or called women, if God has called them into the ministry, that they can be pastors, they can be priests, they can be those with the authoritative teacher, teacher position in a local church, teaching men holding the office of pastor or elder, that they can be so, and they use this as an example. But this example does not fit because it says merely because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. She is merely explaining her personal experience and personal exchange, her words with Christ, and how she was amazed at what he knew about her and what he said about himself, and now she has come to believe in what he says. So she's basically just sharing her experience or her testimony with the people. This is what has happened to me. She is not holding a position in the synagogue. She's not holding a position in the local church. She's not holding any pastoral position whatsoever. She does not hold office. That's not what's happening here. Now, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 to make certain that it is only, the, this office of pastor is only for qualified men. Only for qualified men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. We'll start at verse 8. He will have an exhortation for the men and then for the women. 1 Timothy 2, 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. And if we were to read further into chapter 3, he assumes, such as in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, an overseer or pastor then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He assumes with that one phrase, the husband of one wife, that the overseer, the pastor, is a man, a qualified man, according to the qualifications of a pastor here in these letters. Well, firstly, Chapter 2, verse 8. Men are to be about praying everywhere, lifting up holy hands, not sinful hands, but holy hands, without wrath and dissension, keeping self-control and keeping a calm and cool spirit in their dealings with everyone. Then verse 9. Women, verses 9 and 10, 
they are supposed to be characterized by good works. Rather, it says in verse 10, but rather by means of good works. Good works should be the clothing that people see in women, not their, their gaudy cosmetics and clothing. Not that, but it should be their good works. As befits women making a claim to godliness. If they claim to be godly women, if they consider themselves that, if others want to consider themselves that, it should be their good works and not their clothing and cosmetics, which should be modest and discreet, verse 9. Then further he explains in 11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. He says quiet a couple of times here in 11 and 12. And this quiet reception of instruction is what should characterize her with entire submissiveness, not with a desire to uh, be critical, overly critical, to fault find with those who are teaching her, but to quietly and entirely submit to it. Then in 12, that they are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Not to teach or exercise authority over a man. He is obviously talking about the local church arrangement, and he's also, obviously, he's mentioning this so that in chapter 3, when he talks about the qualifications of men, that the women already understand their role and their place in the local assembly. So they should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Then two reasons are given in 13 and 14. The first reason is it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. This we know from Genesis 2. The first reason is creational. Adam first was created and then Eve. So priority in creation or existence, Adam was first, then Eve. So the first is the leader, not the second, is his point. This has nothing to do with the culture in the time of Timothy. It has nothing to do with culture. He doesn't even use a cultural argument. He uses a creational argument in 13. It's creational, not cultural. A second reason is in verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. The woman was quite deceived. We do know that, and even Eve says so in Genesis 3.13. It's not as though Paul is wrongfully, as though he is some kind of uh, a chauvinist, imposing his wrong beliefs on the woman or on women. It's not that. Because in Genesis 3.13, Eve says to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 3.13, Genesis 3.13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Paul is merely further interpreting that statement and the implication of it by telling us that the woman was quite deceived and fell into transgression. So the susceptibility to deception, susceptibility to deception is the second reason according to 1 Timothy 2, 14. And instead, their station or their focus should be on the bearing of children and the keeping of the children, raising the children, 
continuing in faith, love, sanctification with self-restraint or self-control. Back to John 4. Back to John chapter 4. 4 and verse now 39. We see that she announces to the townsmen, he told me all the things that I have done. All the things I have done. Verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Could this be the Christ? Is her question. All the things I have done. It is typical. It is typical of the prophets to have some kind of knowledge, some kind of insight into the persons with whom they are dealing. It is typical of that. This is throughout the Old Testament. It was Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9 who was told about where the lost donkeys were of Saul and Saul's father. And that Saul would be coming and that he had a word for Saul when Saul came and approached him. All of that was preparatory for Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Another time in 2 Kings chapter 6, a foreign king is secretly plotting to invade Israel. The king of the Arameans, 2 Kings 6, he is secretly plotting an invasion of Israel, but Israel and its military and king are informed in advance and they are able to escape the plots and the strategies of the foreign king. And how did that happen? The king of... a of, of Aram, he is furious and he's wondering, which one of you of my officials is a traitor? Which one of you of, of my officials is a spy and informing the king of Israel? And then the officials tell him what? No, sir, none, none of us, O king, none of us. But it's Elisha the prophet who is in Samaria. The Elisha the prophet, he's the one who knows exactly what we're saying and doing and he's telling his own king, do this or do that to avert the, the foreign invaders and their plots, okay? So God does do so, and she would have known about incidents like this in the prophets, in, in Moses and in the prophets. She would have known this. So that tells her that this is not an ordinary man. And this is what she reports to the townsmen. He told me all the things that I have done. He had this knowledge without even knowing her. Remember, she was stunned, it says in chapter 4, verse 9, The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. These are strangers. Jesus and the Samaritan woman, they are strangers. They don't know each other. And yet he divulges her past to her. He explains her past to her, correctly interprets her past to her. And this is what she summarizes. He told me all the things that I have done. Well, that is the basis for which she has confidence and faith in Christ. But that does not encompass everything. What was it that is included in all the things that I have done? Her sin. Exactly, her sin. 4.16, 4.16 to 18. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Then she says in 19, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So he had insider, insider information on her inside life, right? Her life, he had that information, and she concludes that Jesus is a prophet based on that. Well, now at this point, after she has been made aware of her sin and the need to repent of her sin, she now shares as a part of her testimony to the townsmen what? Her sin. She has to not be ashamed of it in the sense that she would never mention it whatsoever to anybody ever again. But now she's telling her townsmen about the fact that she was made aware of the implications of her sin. She was made aware of the gravity of her sin. She was made aware of the punishment necessary for her sin. And yet, Jesus also said that I have come to be your Savior, the Savior of the world. I have come for you. So not only the fact of her sin, but the way to resolve her sin as found in Jesus Christ. This is what she would have explained to the people that he not only exposed my sin, but he forgave my sin. And this is what is necessary all the time. It's not merely saying God loves you. It's not merely saying God offers eternal life. It's not merely saying forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Forgiveness of what? And what is the danger that awaits? Forgiveness of sins and the danger that awaits is eternal punishment. That's what we have to explain to people so that their sin is exposed and they understand the nature and the gravity of what's happening. And that's what she did. And that's what he calls us to do, right? He's told us in Luke 24, 46 to 47. Luke 24, 46 to 47. And thus it is written that the Christ should suffer these things, uh, sorry, suffer and rise again on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem and then it spreads throughout the world. And Acts 20, 21, we are to declare repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a dual message, a dual command that we issue to people. Repent and believe. Certainly, that's what she was including in this. She understood it and explained it to them. And that's the way we should. Furthermore, we notice something here. Christ is not there. Christ is not there. It says, because of the word of the woman who testified. Because of the word of the woman who testified. She solemnly testified to the townsmen, and it was on the basis of her word that they believed. In other words, she was the vehicle. The townsmen did not have Jesus there initially, personally, not face to face. They believed what she said based on her testimony. 
and therefore they believed in Christ. John 20, John 20, 29. John 20, 29. Speaking to Thomas. John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. It's good and right to believe when Christ is present. But he says here, he pronounces a word of blessing. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Which includes you and me, does it not? We have not seen him face to face in person and yet we believe. Another example, 1 Peter 1.8. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. They are also commended here, having not ever seen Christ, they still love Christ. They don't see him now, but believe in him, and they greatly rejoice in the salvation that they believe in. Well, this is important because we will come across individuals who will insist to us that they would only but they would believe if Jesus would only, or if God would only appear, if he would only do a miracle, if he would only appear, if I saw God face to face, then I would believe. But the Bible says that a statement like that is originating out of unbelief. It's originating out of skepticism. It's not originating out of a sincere, good faith desire to do what's right. It's not originating out of that. Here we are commended for believing for not seeing. So then they could not be commended on insisting that they see Jesus face to face. Then take, for example, if Jesus were to be present face to face, is there a guarantee that the man who insists, I need Jesus to be right here in front of me, then I'll believe. Is there any guarantee that that man will believe if Jesus were facing him? No. We know it was not true of Judas Iscariot, who accompanied Jesus for three and a half years. We know it was not true of Herod. We know it was not true of Pilate. We know it was not true of the chief priests. We know it was not true of many of the Pharisees, many of the Sadducees. We know it was not true of many of the multitudes of the common people. It was not true of them. They saw him. They touched him. They heard him. They were able to experience his miracles. And yet they did not believe. There is no guarantee that the physical presence of God in human flesh will bring about the salvation of any individual. It doesn't work that way. And we, we should not be alarmed when people say, if only God would show himself, then I would believe. That is no excuse. That is no excuse and we must inform our skeptics, that that is absolutely no excuse. Okay, then further, verse 40. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
Here is a confirmation that the faith that they had, the belief they had in 39, was a true belief because when they did come to him, presumably at the well with his disciples, they actually went out, they, they took the effort, even though they didn't usually go to the well, they went out to the well, however long the distance was, they went there to meet Christ, and when they met him, it wasn't a matter of, now we need you to preach more to us before we believe. They already did believe. And then when they did encounter him, verse 40, they were asking him to stay with them. Their hearts were already converted. They already had a new perspective on life. They were already new creations in Christ Jesus. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. They were new creations already, and their fruit began to show in verse 40. They were asking him to stay with them. They were trying to practice hospitality. They were asking him to stay with them. This is also typical of believers. Believers, when they are new creatures in Christ, they're not selfish. They are generous. They have a genuine concern for the well-being of others. Before, they were living for themselves, and only to the extent that somebody else would benefit them, they would befriend them. They would use them. They make friendships for the sake of conveniences or for the sake of advantage, not for the sake of a genuine love of another human being or concern for another human being or to help another human being. But when we are converted, that changes. And it manifests itself in hospitality. Example of this is Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we begin reading at verse 13. Acts 16, 13 to 15. The Apostle Paul and, and Luke, they are traveling and they come to a, a certain place in the uh, city of Philippi and we pick it up at verse 13. 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. At this riverside, the gospel is preached. The Lord opens the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Verse 14, the gospel was preached. She's listening. God opens her heart and then she responds. The response would have been repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That would have been the response. We know it was faith because of verse 15. If you have judged me to be faithful, faithful to the Lord. But do we notice something here? Notice how quickly all this happened. It was not a year later, 10 years later. It was very quick. We don't know exactly how many hours or minutes, but it is very quick. It says she responded in verse 14, 
Verse 15, and when she and her household had been baptized, her household, so now not only her, she was by the riverside, but now also her household. So there must have been some time for Paul and Luke to go and speak to her household or for her household to come to the riverside. In some way, this happened and they all were baptized and all very quickly believed and quickly baptized. And then she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord in a short time, come into my house and stay. That's just like the Samaritans. Come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She was very eager. She persisted. But perhaps Paul and Luke said, no, no, this okay. Not, not, not now. We have to move on. But she prevailed upon them and they stayed. That's typical. Another example, the same chapter, Acts 16, 16, 31. 16, 31. This jailer, remember, Paul and Silas now are in jail. They escape jail, are about to escape jail. And the jailer, who's in charge of keeping the prisoners, is alarmed. And then he's told that Paul is still there, so he doesn't kill himself. 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very night, uh, that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Here too, very quick, faith, baptism, and not only of the jailer, but of his household. And then they set food before Paul and Silas and they're all rejoicing and having a good time thinking about the things and talking about the things of God. The same with the Samaritans and the same with uh, all of us. When someone has truly been converted, when regeneration and faith have truly come into an individual, that individual's mind, his heart, his aspirations, his ambitions, they change and you start to see a manifestation of it, just as it was with these Samaritans. In verse 40, back to John 4.40, and he stayed there two days. It also took humility. It also took a willingness on the part of Christ or on the part of Paul and Luke, or on the part of Paul and Silas, to receive from someone else's hand. To receive from someone else's hand. It takes humility to do that. Sometimes you come across people who will never accept anything from someone else. Why? Well, I don't want it to be said that you gave me something. Well, I don't want to take something from you as though I need something. I, I can take care of myself. I don't need your help. Right? People have that attitude. Some people do. But not Christ. Not Paul and Luke. Not Paul and Silas. They didn't do that. There is a balance to, to be had with giving and receiving. And here there is the proper balance had here. Further, it says he stayed there two days. Now this two-day stay, it becomes significant um, in the time of the first century, but also later. Because... It was not a prolonged stay where Jesus and his disciples were dependent on all the people. It was not a prolonged stay, um, but it was a two-day stay. 
It was temporary. Now, why would there be a problem or what problem did arise? Well, false teachers in exploiting the kindness of the people would overstay. They would stay a long time and get free food and drink, free food and lodging and whatever other gifts that the people would give. They would exploit that and stay a long time. So in the time, in the post-apostolic period, this became a big problem, and it's even a problem today, manifested in different ways, but still a problem today, that the ministers of the gospel exploit the people who are supposed to be generous towards the ministers, but the ministers are not supposed to exploit them, and during their stay, teach them falsely, and with their sordid, uh, desire for sordid gain, exploit and take advantage of the people's possessions or the people's kindnesses. That's not supposed to happen either. And I think this is illustrated here by this temporary stay. Yes, it's good and right, but it has its place. It should not be overdone. In the same way today, there should be no minister exploiting the kindness and the goodness and the generosity of the people who come to his congregation. That should not happen as well. Otherwise, it would be sordid gain. One example of this warning is in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. And verse 17, 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Pastors should not be exploiting the people and the people should not be exploiting the pastor. We pick it up now at verse 41. John 4, 41. John 4, 41. And many more believed because of his word. And many more believed because of his word. Well, this is a result of what Jesus anticipated in verses 34 to 38. A a large harvest, an abundant harvest. And so many more believed. Many did in verse 39, and then many more did in verse 41. Many more believed because of his word. The key, I think, here is his word. It doesn't say that they were intrigued and and flattered that he would perform miracles on their behalf. It doesn't say that they came because they were going to get food from Christ, which is a problem in chapter 6, right? 
It doesn't say any of that, which reminds us of the fact that it is the word of God. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith, true faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Not from the word of Christ plus candy. Not the word of Christ plus a circus. Not the word of Christ plus music. Not the word of Christ because of a winsome personality. Not the word of Christ plus anything. It doesn't happen that way. If someone's going to believe, it has to be believing in this word of Christ. That is why the word of Christ and the preaching of the word of Christ has to be central to everything a local church does. If it's not central, then it will easily be supplanted by something else. It'll easily be overturned and smothered and covered over by something else. We can't let that happen. Because if salvation is in the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17, or from Deuteronomy 32, 47, it is your life. It is your life. Or in Philippians 2, 16, holding forth the word of life. There is no other way. There is no other way of salvation. It's not going to be by anybody's ingenuity, anybody's attraction or attempt to attract sinful human hearts in order to pay attention. It's not going to happen that way. It has to happen by directing people to read the word, to hear the word, to study the word, and to preach and teach this word. This is how it has to happen. That's how it happened here. That's why this is true faith. They believed his word, truly did. 42. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. When they say this to the woman, they are not criticizing her. They're not disdaining her testimony because they already believe based on her testimony. What they're doing is saying that now they have further knowledge. Now they have a further understanding. Now their faith has increased and they are even more confident and enthusiastic about what they initially believed, which is true of all of us, is it not? Is it not true of all of us that it's not only what we heard initially by which we believe, but it's what we hear continually. And that's what they assert here. We have heard more and more, and our faith is increased. Our faith is increased because of that. The disciples. The disciples of Christ are often criticized, often disparaged, because they just don't get it. Yes, in in many ways... They believed. We know from John chapter 1, they believed and they knew that he was the Christ. But then, as we read the rest of John, as we read some other parts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we encounter them having moments of disbelief, moments of uncertainty, moments of confusion. But that should not be evidence that they were completely blind or unbelievers. But it should be evidence of the fact that what was true of them is also true of us. Nobody, nobody from the time of his conversion to the time of his coffin understands everything. Nobody. Nobody does. But from conversion to coffin, what should happen? We should grow in faith. 
It should increase day by day. It should not be lacking. But our knowledge and the work of the Spirit in us should be increasing. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. And we'll begin at verse, excuse me, verse 4. Second Peter 1, 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In verse 4, he tells us we have been granted everything we need by his precious and magnificent promises. We have escaped the world. But having escaped the world, what should characterize us? Verse 5, all diligence. Verse 5, all diligence. Verse 10, be all the more diligent. All the more diligent. And also, if we continue in verse 15, I will be all also Uh, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Peter is being diligent and he wants the disciples to be diligent in growing in these godly virtues. And he says in verse 8 that it should increase if these qualities are ours. We have them to some extent, but we have to increase in them and be all the more diligent to make certain about God's calling and choosing us. And I think in the same way, John 4, 42, the the people of Samaria are asserting that. They believed, but now they are believing even more, more strongly in the faith. And 42, what do they confess? That this one is indeed the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Now, this expression, Savior of the world, does not occur precisely like that in the Old Testament, Savior of the world. It is more of a New Testament phrase. But the concept, Savior, and the concept of the world, Jesus being the Savior of the world, is throughout the Old Testament in many, many places. Earlier, we read Psalm 67. We could have read Psalm 117. We could have read parts of many parts of Isaiah. We did read Isaiah chapter 49, which expresses completely and, and uh, elaborately expresses this concept 
that the Israel of God, of Isaiah 49, verse 3, will have an Israel, meaning his people, his church, comprised of people all around the world, the Savior of the world. That concept is, for sure, in the Old Testament. But then someone might say, did, did we not learn that the Samaritans did not believe in Isaiah? That they did not believe in David and the Psalms? That's true. So let's see where in Moses, where they did believe, let's see where in Moses they might know and believe that the Christ would be the Savior of the world. Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. This is Jacob pronouncing a prophetic blessing on his sons who, who would become tribes. Israel or Jacob pronouncing a blessing. We pick it up at verse 10. 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here, from the tribe of Judah, Judah's scepter will not depart until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is another word for the coming Christ. And he's going to come. Remember, even the woman of Samaria said that Christ is coming, John 4, 25. She believed that Christ is coming based on a verse like this one from 49.10, Shiloh is coming. And when Shiloh comes, the peoples of the earth are going to obey him. Like it says in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. Or even as John says in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3.36. So here in Genesis 49.10, Jacob is predicting, prophesying, that Christ is going to have the peoples of the world obey him by believing in him. Further, verse 18, Genesis 49, 18. He says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. For your salvation. There we have the word for Savior or salvation. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. I don't think Jacob is, is necessarily and only waiting for his own personal fulfillment of salvation. That is, he's about to die and he's going to be with the Lord I don't think he means that as much as he is anticipating the coming of the Savior who provides the salvation for him. The Savior who will provide the salvation for him. And then 49, Genesis 49, 24, 49, 24. He's blessing another one of his sons and he says in 49, 24, but his bow remained firm and his arms agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The shepherd, the stone of Israel. Christ calls himself, John 10, the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And he also is known as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. 1 Peter 2, verse 8, 7 and 8. So, here we have even Jacob 
acknowledging that the Shiloh who's coming is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. He's the shepherd and the stone of Israel. These would have been some of the verses that the Samaritans and the woman of Samaria would have known and believed to anticipate and to be able to say that Christ is the Savior of the world. Savior of the world. And now, are the Samaritans Jews? No. The Samaritans are not Jews, right? The Jews are more purely or more rightly the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even more specifically from the tribe of Judah. That's what the Jews are. The Samaritans, they are a mixed race, a mixed group from the northern part of the land of Israel because of the influx of the Assyrian Empire and the peoples of the Assyrian Empire who mixed and mingled with them and not only diluted the race, but diluted the religion. They did both. They did everything there to destroy the national identity of the northern tribes. And that's how we have the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the descendants of that incident or those incidents that happened in about 700 years before the time of Christ's ministry. So now they are included. Now they know from based on Moses and based on the Old Testament, they know that they are included and that Christ came also for them. He came also for them. Christ did not come for Jews only, contrary to Hindus and Muslims and others who say that the Bible and the gospel is only for the Jews. And he did not come for the Gentiles only, contrary to others who want to exclude the Jews from salvation, any kind of salvation, such as the Aryans, the Aryans of India and the so-called Aryans, perhaps so, of, of Germany and other places. They want to exclude Jesus from being a Jew and salvation from the Jews. And even today in the United States and in other parts, we have this cult called Black, Is, uh, Black Hebrew Israelites who want to exclude uh, Jews who are really Jews from any salvation whatsoever. That's impossible too. We can't have any of that. All of that is wrong because salvation is for Jew and Gentile by faith in Christ. That's what it means, the Savior of the world. We also notice, did anybody notice here? that they didn't first have to have a meeting and to talk about all of the evils that were perpetuated by one group against the other. They did not have to have uh, a reconciliation meeting, racial reconciliation. They didn't have to first address all of these things and call each other racist and bring up all the racial tensions that they had in the past. None of that happened here. What happened? The gospel was preached they believed the truth, they embraced the truth, and they were huddling, they were um, gathering around the truth. And that's all that mattered to them. Yes, people sin and they mistreat each other in many ways in the past. That happens, but that's not what is the basis of the gospel. That's not what is the basis of, of community. That's not what the basis of a church is. That's not what the basis should be. And it was not here. They happily took a Jew as their savior. 
Even though 4 verse 9 says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, which also implies Samaritans have no dealings with Jews. They try to avoid each other. They try not to believe in each other, right? But not here. Everybody's happy because everybody's focused on the gospel of truth. And that's the way it should be with us. Now, verse, verses 43 to 45, another example of the same with the Galileans. And we'll pick up there next time on what happens here in Galilee. But what will we do? Will we imitate this example? This example of the woman, the example of the Samaritans, and the, even the example of Christ and his apostles. Let's do so. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that indeed that we will keep uh, our minds single-minded, focused on what is true and right, and not detract at all from the, to the right or to the left from your word. May that be precious to us. May it be sweet to us. May it be the only thing that is a concern for us. And may all of our thinking be influenced by what your word says. May we shake off and reject any kind of thought, philosophy, religion, theology, practice, belief, whatever it might be that controverts your word. May we submit to your word and your word alone. And rejoice, and rejoice in the truths of God as others did in the past and as we can and ought to do now. Grant it to us and encourage us in the faith. Build us up and strengthen us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.